Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today, I'm sitting down with Sinjin Craner, Managing Director of Agrarian, the independent agribusiness that helps rural companies win through proven, effective sales and marketing strategies. Welcome, Sinjin. Hey, Darren. Nice to be here. Sinjin, uh, I'm really uh, quite excited because for me, agribusiness and and even rural marketing is like feels like it's lower on the scale of what advertising agencies consider than even retail. You know, retail's often uh, discarded down to the sort of forgotten bin, um, and and it feels the same for agribusiness. Have you got any perspectives on that? Yeah, I mean, it, it often is. I mean, often people sort of conjure up pictures of farmers and food producers as people just hayseeders chewing on barley, leaning against the fence post who haven't got much money to rub together except for the lint in their pockets. But the reality is uh, farmers are a very, very prosperous bunch. They spend a lot of money. Um, you know, they're the backbone of uh, a lot of economies, even more so in COVID times where food production and fiber is incredibly important. So yeah, it's often sort of overlooked, undervalued, and most importantly, underestimated. So I've always been taught you've got to hit it where they ain't. Uh, it's uh, part of your blue ocean strategy, I imagine. Well, yeah, I mean, I can't can't take that. <laughs> can't take that because that's someone else's <laughs> idea. But yeah, the idea is really to, you know, find a niche and exploit it and go rather go sort of horizontal, go really, really deep on a vertical. And I come from a farming background and, you know, we'll talk about the corporate gigs I've done, the agency life. And then I've come full back to farming, agricultural kind of industry, which is kind of where I'm in. And, you know, it's 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 funny that I've ended up there, but I, I love the people in it. It's a very honest trade. And, um, yeah, it's, I think it's very much underserved and underestimated. So uh, it, it goes well. So let's start with that, you know, growing up in a uh, you know, rural, but it wasn't rural in Australia or New Zealand, was it? You were gr- grew up in uh, rural England. Yeah, yeah. I uh, grew up um, on the uh, sort of shards of Essex. They always say you can take the boy out of Essex, but not Essex out of the boy. I was uh, fortunately I sent away to school, but I grew up on a farm in uh, England, just outside of Epping, in Epping Forest, um, small farm, and... My dad was a director for Dalgetty at the time, and we had uh, had the farm as a sort of side interest, really. Um, I think he just upset too many people, so that's why we had the farm, because uh, like me, he was one of the most patient men of the world. And uh, he, um, I sort of grew up in an agricultural environment. We had farming neighbours. Um, my dad started off originally selling seed and chemical and fertiliser, and mum would throw various objects at him as farmers came up the driveway to collect her. Uh, cans and drums and drench and uh, yeah I've been sort of surrounded by it and um, you know I was very lucky I had a really beautiful childhood a lot of land to live on and um, and then obviously moved across later on in life um, to New Zealand where I sort of gravitated to an agricultural environment or an agrarian economy again um, so I find myself back where I started really. But Sinjin, you, before you even left the UK, you actually started a career in advertising. You were working yeah. for one of the big agencies, weren't you? 
Yeah, I was. So it's kind of weird how it came full circle, but I, um, I've always been a competitive wee fella and, um, yeah, did my school. And the story is actually my old man used to take his truck drivers to Twickenham um, for the Varsity match, which is the cheap version, the cheap sheets version. So you couldn't afford the England tickets. And sorry to mention the word England because it might offend some of you some of your listeners. And um, so dad would take his truck drivers, he'd bring me along. And from like the get-go, I was always fascinated why the hoardings were around the stadium and why the hell were they spending money? And I'm showing my age here, but like Whitbread and Casio and, you know, Toyota and Fosters and all these brands. It's like, well, why are they advertising? Like, why would someone buy just because they were, you know, exposed to some billboards around a, around a stadium? And that really started it, that curiosity. And then I found myself uh, competing for one place against 50 for Bournemouth University, which was the only advertising marketing media degree course of its kind. So the UK government were throwing money at this red brick college. I wasn't smart enough to get to Oxbridge. I missed out. And um, I went down to Bournemouth because, one, it was a course that was unique of its time. And it also had the most sunshine hours and it has sandy beaches. So, like, it's kind of ticked all the boxes. So, yeah, did that. And that really set me up. And that's where I kind of got into agency world, really. We went through the IPA um, UK clearinghouse and did some work for Low Howard Spink as an intern. So when I wasn't on the farm, i catch the train in and then go and work in Covent Garden with those guys and run to the British Library and do all their research with the new business pitches like a little intern. And, uh, and then enjoy London by night and then go home and come back. And I did that and then finished my degree course and uh, ended up ended up getting picked up in the agency sort of milk round, really. And was it the same selection criteria, you know, sunlight, good beaches that uh, got you to New Zealand? Uh, yeah, That's halfway actually... around the world, by the way. Yeah, I know. It's a, it is a long way. It's a long plane ride or two, um, as I recently found, worked out again when I saw you. But um, I... Uh, I kind of, I met my wife uh, actually in Australia and I was backpacking a grubby little English backpacker doing my paddy dive ticket and, you know, going through life. And life was pretty simple then, Darren. You remember the days. And um, I uh, and then met my wife and went over to New Zealand and thought it's a pretty cool place. And it reminded me a lot of home, actually. Very agricultural, very rural, you know, rugby, farming, lots of big open spaces. I've never really been a city boy. Um, I've always been sort of provincial and played rugby in different provincial centres. And and so, yeah, and then um, picked up picked up um, Agency World there and and then picked up some client-side opportunities because I don't know what you think and we might go on attention, but, you know, it's really interesting working agency side and then going client-side and I really wanted to kind of balance my career in that regard, so I've done a bit of both. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's interesting talking to people that have either gone just agency or just client compared to those that have actually been on both sides. You know, and you've worked for some really quite substantial corporate businesses, you know, uh, Westpac, New Zealand Post, uh, uh, Contract Energy in the marketing area. What, what was the biggest lesson for you or what were the biggest difference when you first went from agency side to being a marketer? in an in a organisation or a corporation? Great question. Uh, the first thing is that agencies think they're close to the decision-making and they're not. Like, I think the whole reason I went client-side to round off my experience was to really understand how that environment, that corporate environment operates, the hierarchies, business cases, structures, systems, strategy. And the biggest insight I got pretty early on 
at my days at Westpac and Contact Energy, which is owned by Origin Energy or was in the in, in Aussie, was agencies think they're really close to the decision making and influencing decision making, and they're not. Well, we found we weren't with our agencies, and so you're much closer talking to the GMs, doing the strategy, working on economic business cases. I mean, I know you're a big fan of talking about outcomes rather than outputs. But, you know, everything was business case. Everything was commercially justified. You know, we did brand work where uh, Content Energy, we would actually correlate brand favorability against customer churn and try and see if there was a correlation. And so, you know, we kind of took the agency kicking and screaming down that road because obviously if our churn went down because our brand favorability went up, then we were going to spend more money with that agency. So, yeah, that, that was the biggest insight really, just that you agency side, you think you're close, you think you're influencing, you're really close to decision making and the reality is you're not yeah because there's so many layers well it's interesting as well as the that those three big organizations in many ways are all service providers you know rather than package goods you know uh banking um logistics post is logistics and energy utilities uh which is a very different relationship and a different way of working as a marketer compared to you know say, traditional consumer packaged goods, which, you know, in if you listen to the sort of university of, of marketing, teaches this very long-term planning, whereas service industries seem to work on much shorter cycles. Um, you know, I, I remember talking to uh, old bankers and insurance companies and, and, you know, I'd talk about their annual plan and most marketers would say, we're lucky to have a 90-day plan. <laughs> Was yeah, that I mean- your experience? I think with with Post and with uh, Content Energy and with Westpac, they were all kind of what you call them um, grudge purchases because you didn't have a choice. You had to have utility, you had to have a bank, and you had to use the postal system, you know, when the postal system was kind of worked. So it was very much more the kind of brand positioning end, share market share, as opposed to that kind of granular units sales lead generation so it was much more at the macro kind of brand level so my marketing experience was more at the sort of brand positioning level and we were desperately trying to correlate that to attributable accountable to lead generation like how many customers did we get how many did we lose you know share of what an opportunity did we get them as the first home buyer can we then get their credit card and then can we expand that customer relationship further so yeah i mean the you know, all of them were grudge purchases and everyone kind of hated us. So it was like, how do we get them to hate us less? And I'm being, you know, terribly impolite and disservice to them. But that was the kind of thing is just being liked more. And obviously, if they liked us more, maybe they would hang around and choose us and stay with us for longer. Yeah. And where do you think that was it sort of your childhood and the the happy memories of uh growing up on the farm that sort of came back to you? Or what was it that got you focused from, you know, what are quite corporate roles that you had, both on agency and client side? Because, you know, you even had time as the uh, head of marketing for, uh, was it Distinct Communications for, for two or three years? You know, you've had quite senior roles. What, what brought you back to uh, rural and agricultural marketing? Well, I think... Um you know, I think everyone, I think it's really important that everyone experiences corporate. I think it's a really important part of career for people coming through, particularly people that have worked in agencies. The best advice I got from my group account director at Y&I was like, go and get a client role and work out their environment, you know, their world, what they're about. 
and spend a few years there. And that was really good advice. And it served me really, really well. But going back to the sort of agricultural, agribusiness sector and farming sector is I wanted to kind of niche down. Um, and I felt, to be honest, I kind of corporate didn't suit me. You know, I'm a farmer boy um, who doesn't really live in the city. And, and, you know, we just don't sort of tolerate the sort of the corporate way. And uh, as a result, you know, I didn't stay in court for too long. I mean, I moved out of London and played my rugby out in Siren's sister pretty quick because I found London pretty full on. But, you know, it was a rite of passage. I had to do it. And you sometimes I've got to work out uh, what you don't want to do to work out what you do want to do. Um, and so I ended up in agriculture and rural because it's such an important sector and it's such a neglected sector. And um, I think you've also got to do something that you love doing. And then the whole idea of career capital and following your passions, but you really got to you got to kind of choose your tribe, like who you're into and who you're who you'll walk over water for. And you know, having come from a farming background, I've known farmers. I've grown up in rural communities. I've lived and worked and played in rural communities. Like I like I like rural people. I like country folk. It's not that I don't like city folk. I love coming into the city. I love my city fix as well. It's always exciting. But I find there's a real more of a deep genuine persona attached to rural people because often it was described as rural communities are um close but not closed but everyone thinks it's a reverse you know that rural communities are very closed off you know they all look you up and down in the pub when you turn up and who the hell are you but they're incredibly once you work out who they are and how they tick and what they're about and you give them their due respect which a lot of people don't because you've got to remember, like most farmers or dairy farmers, Darren could probably buy you and I five times over. Maybe not you, but definitely me. And they're very modest, they're very humble. And that kind of sat with me because there's a lot of kind of puffery, a lot of insecurity in corporate, same in agency world. And I just wanted something that was more genuine, more authentic, where it was kind of my kind of people. And, you know, they say, you know, your vibe attracts your tribe, so to speak. So I kind of found myself gravitating back to where, where I came from. There is a danger, isn't there, from uh, more from a corporate and or large uh, agency sense of really not either being in touch or engaged with the consumer, you know, other than uh, perhaps seeing some research reports or, God forbid, attending some focus groups. Um, people are inclined to lose touch with you know, what it actually means to be a customer of particular brands, don't they? Oh, they do. I mean, we see this all the time that, you know, uh, my, oh, I spent time on the family farm in the holidays, so I must know rural, I must know agribusiness. And you hear this from agencies that have tap on rural and agribusiness because they want to want to crack at a piece of rural marketing, you know, like a big uh, dairy process or moat process or feed for whatever seed. And they don't, you know, I think one of the things is you have to be from the market to know the market and you can't pay lip service because you get found out and you have to go a million miles deep. And you really, isn't it ironic that marketers, I mean, they you need to know your market, <laughs> but so few do because they don't take the time to immerse themselves in their customer's world. Yeah, look, I think um, the marketers that have, like you, made a commitment to a particular category go very deep very quickly over time. I think it's the ones that move around. Um, you know, you do have to spend, it's quite a significant amount of time and effort 
to really get under the skin. You know, I, I used to joke to people that when I moved from uh, medical science to advertising, people would say, why? And I said, well, my boss at the time gave me the opportunity to do a PhD. And the worry, the worry for me was that I'd end up an expert in a very narrow field, but it would be a mile deep. And they say, well, what about advertising? I go, well, that allows you to be an expert in a field that's a mile wide if you're happy just being an inch deep. And I think that's, uh, that's one of the things about uh, advertising that in some ways attracts people that have got a curiosity ac across many different areas rather than necessarily applying it to a very focused and deep uh, knowledge in a particular area. And I know that's a generalisation, but, you know, generally I've found many people think that way. Well, it's funny you used to say that because you're talking about generalisation. So the analogy I always use is, do you want to be the cardiologist or the GP? So we know that doctors today are, we've got Dr. Google sort of challenging what was the traditional mainstay of communities, the doctor, and we don't believe our doctor's advice these days. So what happens when the doctor's got a real problem, they send you to the specialist. So I think being the cardiologist, not the GP, being the specialist, not the generalist actually serves you a lot better. It's, it's scary to narrow down to a niche because if you, you worry about, oh, is it going to be boring? I'm going to be working on the same brands, talking to the same kind of customers. But do you think the best paid cardiologists or oncologists in the world get bored? You know, do you want your cardiologist who's also an expert in, you know, paediatrician or podiatry you don't you want them to be the very best so yeah i think being a being a specialist is actually serves you a lot better than being a generalist because you know you're jack of all trades or, or master of none you know so since you've been focusing on agribusiness what re, what would you say is the big differences you know because you've got this corporate experience as a marketer you've got the agency experience so over the years mixed in with that. When you came to agribusiness, well, did you have some preconceived ideas that perhaps have been debunked or you realise they don't give you the, the mileage that you thought they would? Well, I suppose, like, again, coming from the sector, I kind of, I wasn't, my eyes weren't closed. I've, you know, I've hung around farmers and they've been our neighbours in the community for years when I grew up. So I had a bit of an idea. I think, um, but, I mean, like, Agribusiness doesn't separate itself from being corporate. There are some very big corporates. You look at the John Deere's, the Fonterra's, um, you know, then you've got all the rural real estate guys, the fertilizer companies. These are, these are really, really big businesses in their own right. You know, if you, you know, depending on where you're listening, the GDP of any country, some countries, is predominantly agricultural and food and fiber production. So, yeah, I'd, I'd just pull you up there, though, Sinjin, because like take Fonterra. Fonterra is a massive dairy business, right? But it has a consumer front that is promoting their brands and that's the one the agencies are attracted to. So when we're talking about agribusiness, I'm really interested in getting some sort of definition from you as what's the difference? Because, you know, any agency listening to this would say, we love food businesses. We love, we love Nestle, uh, Mondelez, uh, uh, who else is there? Um, you know, we'd love any of those uh, pieces of business because they're really, you know, rich and, and uh, exciting uh, B2C uh, advertising opportunities. Whereas 
you know, I think most people when they talk about agribusiness are not thinking about it as B2C. They're thinking more as a B2B opportunity. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, it's bang on. And I'm glad you reminded me because it's almost a B2F, isn't it? Business to farmer. Yeah. And, um, you know, when you talk about agribusiness and some people spit between agriculture because, you know, they say farming is so last century and it's food production today. But in order to get food production, you need a farmer. So agribusiness works at the farmer end and then consumer works at the food production end. So you're absolutely right. That's the distinction. So when it comes to agribusiness, it's going deep on understanding that farmer's psyche. You know, it's not like I'm a farmologist if there is such a term, but actually really getting inside the brain of your buyer, your specific ideal buyer, which is a farmer, which could be a lower order share milker or a 50-50 share milker or a dairy milker or a farm manager, farm owner. So yeah, when I talk about agribusiness, I'm working for companies that want to sell to farmers and farmers have very big checkbooks. Well, it's an expensive business as well. You know, they make good money, but they also have to invest significantly. And it's an incredibly risky business as well, because, you know, they're largely at the whim of, first of all, the environment, the weather, which has become more and more unpredictable, but also the marketplaces. I mean, you know, in Australia, we saw the Chinese market put bans on things like barley, uh, 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 lobster and the like, and, and, you know, wines, and it decimated uh, those categories initially because so much of it, you know, there are significant risks associated with uh, with agribusiness, isn't there? There is. I mean, it's... um. It's not just weather, it's schedule prices, it's trade wars, currency. There's so many things that a farmer can't control. So the best advice I got from some of our farming panels is the best farmers control what they can control, and they call it controlling the controllable. And that whole, you know, locus of control. But the reality is most farmers are price takers, not value makers. You know, so they have to take what's there. And it is, it's high risk, it's very volatile. You can have good season, you can have a bad season schedule price, payout price changes particularly. So that adds a lot of variability to you've got to you've got to understand those nuances and understand the pressures from input costs. So you think about the input costs of farmers at the moment, nitrogen or urea fertilizer is at fourteen hundred dollars a ton. This is Aussie or New Zealand, and it used to be six hundred. So you know, we're talking about increasing food prices as consumers, but farmers are hitting massive input costs. But if you don't understand that stuff, and you're trying to sell a farm or something, you know, you've really got to get that value tuned in because they're facing massive input costs and that is squeezing their margins. So then you have to have a different conversation because anyone can sell far- anyone can sell anything to farmers in the good times. It's being able to sell something to them in the bad times and it's very volatile. Yeah. So, you know, for big agribusinesses, you know, and, and I'll go back to Fonterra as well, because in some ways I know it was owned by, you know, the co-ops, the dairy co-ops were really popular. They've all become corporatized. You know, most of them have ended up either being bought or they've floated on the stock exchange. And so, you know, we've seen now a situation where the dairy farmer that you were talking about before no longer has that influence or control over the processor, you know, uh, and so they're producing uh, milk and they're getting paid by the litre based on whatever the processor contracts them at. You know, that must also have a huge impact on farmers as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not an expert on the cooperative model, but there's a lot of fertiliser companies or dairy companies that run on the cooperative model because farmers... In terms of agency and autonomy, they are right at the end of the scale. And what I mean by that is they are—they want to be their own boss. They—they they don't want to be controlled. 
Um, and as a result, they want to try and own and get dividends, dividends back. So when you've got, whether it's Nutrien or Elders or Farmlands or PG Wrights and you know, rural retailers, they have a cooperative model where the dividend is returned to the farmer. Or I mean, farmers even have their own vet clubs. They own the veterinary practices to keep those vets in their communities. And then they take a dividend from, from the proceeds, from the building, from the valuation, from the medicine, from the prescriptions, et cetera. But ultimately, um, farmers are farmers are control freaks, Darren, just like all of us. They want to control everything they possibly can, but there's a limit to what they control. And the good ones work out that, okay, I can only control this, so I'll just focus on what I can control and what I can't. And cooperative model is changing. The problem with Fonterra, and I've, I've been on record saying this, is they're trying to run two business models at the same time, and that's what really buggered them up. They're trying to be a consumer brand's business, and they're trying to be a wholesaler milk procurement business, and this is the same for others. And they fall between two stools, and there's a lot of discussion, a lot of commentary in the media, and I, you know, we won't bore our listeners to death on this because we go deeper on other stuff, but Fonterra, it's like they're straddling two horses. And as a result, you know, they've tried to do trading amongst farmers, float more of it on the um, stock exchange. It's been a mess. Yeah. I just want to pick you up on something that you said earlier, which is, you know, those corporate marketing roles that you had was very much focused on brand and brand building and making people like the brand because, as you said, you know, in many ways it was an essential grudge purchase that people were making in those particular categories. And I also noticed in the description of your business, Agrarian, you talk about a proven effective sales and marketing strategies. Now, that's also something that's quite different because when we talk to, you know, uh, advertising agencies working with, say, you know, consumer packaged goods and food companies, they're primarily talking about brand and advertising as a tool to drive brand awareness and brand values. But you've actually, and, and I'm assuming it's deliberately, built sales and marketing into your proposition. What is it about your philosophy or the category of agribusiness that makes it so important to have sales as part of that mix? Yeah, I'm glad you asked because the thing is, we often see marketing and I've, you know, I've worked in agencies, I've been privileged to work in agencies and corporate and they're just not, there's not enough attribution. It's very simple. Either the farmer's buying something from you or they're buying it from someone else. Uh, they don't generally care about so much about brands. Yes, that's a generalization. They're more, you know, at the end of the day, we're measuring success by did the farmer buy the fertilizer, the feed, the seed, the tractor, the raker, the tedder, the mower, what did they buy? And we're measuring success in a much more granular way. So what we're trying to do is like marketing to me is sometimes it's just, it's a bit, you know, when I meet rural companies that have worked with agencies, they've been burnt and bruised with the dark arts or what they call the muck and mystery of agencies who've gone in there, pretended that they've known the business, but they haven't, they paid lip service to it. That rural companies then paid that agency to learn on the job. And I'll spill some beans as well so we can get this sort of fired up a bit, is that sometimes those agencies, because rural isn't their core competency, and there's a very few that are, there are a few that are, but not many, is they lean on the rural media, media companies to teach them about rural. So like the agency world is struggles because they can't get granular about attribution and accountability. And in farming, they live or die, not based on macro factors. It's like, how much yield did I produce? How much dry matter did I produce? How many milk solids do I produce? What was my live weight gain? 
So it's about measuring things. And, and, and farming is very much about inputs and outputs. So same with marketing is, okay, I, I spent a, money, a bunch of money on marketing. What return did I get? The far, you're using a farmer's value equation there, inputs equal outputs. So you can't just bury some money in there and expect not to get an outcome. And, and I think that's what's made me really move away from that traditional kind of agency model. I even hate the word agency, to be honest, Darren, because of the connotations it kicks up, because of the lack of lack of duty of care or pastoral care in this sense. They don't care about getting the results. And you can't do that in rural because memories die very, very long in rural. It's a very, very tight community. You can't do that. You can't burn and bruise and play numbers game in rural. And is that also because, relatively speaking, can compared to consumer marketing where there's in any market there's potentially millions of consumers, rural is actually, to your point earlier, quite a tight community or a smaller community, but they, they're they all connected in many ways. And, and so if you burn any part of it, it has long-term brand impacts or reputational impacts. It does. It's kind of self-governing. It keeps everyone honest. Um, you know, we've had situations where people turn up and say, oh, can I talk to the boss? This is to the wife of the farming household. This is like a, a bank that we were we were training. And you've just basically alienated 50% of your market and you're probably not going to get another look in because usually that farming wife is the CFO or the CEO of the household and she's going, bugger that, I'm the boss. You haven't given me the respect I'm deserved so you can piss off down the driveway in your ute and you won't be back here for another 10 years to get a look in. So there's some real bad mistakes that get made. And I'm not going to talk to you about the importance of rural women, agricultural women, because there's plenty of people more better positioned and qualified to talk about that. But you've got to understand that rural, you can't play a corporate game with rural. They are a different beast. Um, it's not a numbers game. There's a lot of loyalty. And you need to be a, you need to be a man or woman of your word. You need to deliver on what you do because Otherwise, you get kicked out of the community. It's as simple as that. You just can't play the big, the big numbers game. You know, you're right. They're all interconnected. So it's all about uh, being authentic, I guess. You know, well, actually like, delivering as a brand or a business, being authentic in all your dealings with your uh, customers. Well, absolutely. It's back back to what I said at the start of our conversation: is that I gravitated back to rural because I saw them as authentic, real, you know, genuine people with an honest trade of like, I spend this money on a crop or an animal to get this result. And I'm just applying the same philosophy and same principles to the business here. So yeah, it's, it's not like corporates are dishonest or city folk are different, but it's faster. Um, it's more transactional and it's not as deep, you know? So, you know, with the rural, you've just got to be more, I think there's a greater responsibility for rural and yeah, you hold each other to account because it's such a small community they're all connected and so you've got to you've got to do the right job and you've got to do the right thing by them you can get away with it in the city you won't get away with it in the country well and i think it's a numbers game you know because if you've got a large customer base uh maybe some people play the you know if i'm upsetting one or two that's a small percentage but you know in to to your point in this particular case it's actually significant because they are so well connected I do, and you might say I'm being a pedant here, but I do think that the order that you put it in of effective sales and marketing strategies in that order is actually us about. And I say that because I personally believe that marketing comes before sales in that 
in establishing a brand or a reputation, that actually opens the door and makes sales easier. But do you have a different uh, perspective? Because some people say to me, no, sales comes first and marketing is the support to it. Yeah, good pickup. I probably transposed it, so I'll give myself the grace. The reality is marketing gets a bad rap because of lack of attribution accountability. Sometimes I can't get deals through because marketing is a trigger word that activates and arouses boards in the wrong way. And so we actually call it sales support. And I actually think that basically marketing is subservient to sales, Darren, and is a servant to sales because marketing should generate qualified leads that the sales team can then close. But they've got to work together. And the problem is most agencies don't want to talk about sales. They just want to talk about marketing because marketing is way sexier, right? Who wants to talk about sales? Even the word sales kicks up these horrible connotations. But the lifeblood of any business is sales. So marketing has to work very closely to support the sales team with the insights, with the leads, with the positioning, with the lead generation, with the content to then create an opportunity to have a conversation to close a customer. Okay, but you mentioned before, you know, you started reeling off some brands like John Deere, um, you know, there's fertiliser companies like Pivot, um, you know, they've all built brands that have reputations that must give them some sort of advantage in the marketplace or is it all commodity and commoditized? Look, it's a, that's a good one. I mean, the reality is it depends on the behavior of the brand, isn't it? Like you can choose to be a commodity um, you know, the price differential between a New Holland tractor and a John Deere tractor. I mean, a John Deere tractor is a conspicuous fitness, uh, fitness signal. It's a, it's a, I'm, I'm, I'm a successful farmer. So I'm going to drive a green and gold tractor as opposed to a blue and yellow one. So the reality is that that whole, com- we probably haven't got enough time to worry about commodities versus brands. But what I would say to it is that commodities don't understand brand. They're just selling on price. They're not selling on any emotive value or any psychological factors. But the reality is you actually need to have, you do need to have the brand space, but you also need to then convert that brand marketing into some kind of sales attribution. You know, obviously your brand position is going to hold up a price premium. So if, you, if you're if you pulling a brand together, you've got to make sure the positioning, this is why people pay more for Mercedes versus a, a, Zuki, a Suzuki Swift. We know that. But the, the Insatex, the John Deere's, the big, the, the Nutrients, the Elders, um, it's really, really hard for them to play in the brand space because farmers' mindset is commoditized because they are selling commodities as well. They're selling on the futures market. So it's really, really hard. But you still see those brand dynamics at play. And so there's a place for brands in rural, but you've also got a ground truth. You've got to get lead generation off the back of brand. So the positioning has got to support the pricing, which has got to support the lead generation. So why should I buy from you? It's not just a rational decision it's an emotional decision too and then uh, if you can build the brand then you can hold the premium and you you get yourself away from that commodity trap but it's really really hard because farmers are in a commodity mindset give me this generic chemical give me this seed give me this fert they buy in commodities so it's very hard to break out of it so there's definitely a place for brand but you've also got to get the sale at the same time it's an interesting uh it's an interesting framework that you're sharing there because, you know, there are not many farm brands that have worked beyond a very niche uh, uh, opportunity. You know, like we've seen uh, particular farmers, dairy farmers, 
uh, beef and uh, cattle, trying to create, you know, Highland beef and, and things like that to, to create a brand awareness and hopefully break out of that uh, market commoditization of selling by the, the kilo or the tonne or the, you know, whatever. Um, but it's a really tough thing to do because, I mean, one of the big struggles is actually being able to guarantee supply. And one of the things a brand needs is to be able to guarantee supply. So it's interesting that that same mentality of creating and selling your product as a commodity on a commoditized market uh, also goes through to the way they purchase. It makes sense. Yeah, I mean, there's a few success stories in there. I mean, I, I did a bit of this when I was at Lincoln doing my Kellogg. Um, and, uh, you know, Icebreaker's done a great job with fine wool, with merino wool. And they've, you know, they've obviously got bought up. Um, and, you know, um, I work with a client here, Atkins Ranch, here in New Zealand, and they they supply through to Whole Foods, Amazon. And, you know, they get really good premiums for their food producers because they hit certain grades and certain specifications that that particular customer wants. The thing is, the way that you get out of that commodity trap is understanding you've got it. We talked about like food production and consumer being separate from farmer and food producer. There's a line of sight between the two of them. And that's where you make the premiums. And that's where you escape from the commodity trap. Yeah. Because what they're doing is they're going, actually, I know how my food is produced. The animals had good welfare. Um, they didn't use a bunch of chemical or timber treatments on their fencing. So therefore, I'm going to pay more for it. But those success stories are far and few between. It's still very much a commodity market. And it's a market share kind of play and like price. So, you know, the the marketing maturity of rural is still quite immature and unsophisticated generally. And that of rural marketing managers, just by the way in which they spend their money um, in sort of big, big dick swinging competitions at field days and such, you know, you see a lot of immaturity. There's still a long, <laughs> there's a long way to go down to get like rural marketers could learn so much more from their consumer cousins. Yeah, absolutely. Look, uh, Sinjin, it's been terrific having this conversation. You've actually uh, reminded me of some of the big challenges that uh, food producers have. And look, you, know, uh, you operate across Australia and New Zealand. I, I'm sure you've had the conversation as well with many of your clients around, you know, the, the strength of the Australian and New Zealand brands for those food producers, yeah? Yeah, very much so. I mean, you know, you guys do a great job on the wall side. Um, on your meat side as well and, and little old New Zealand holds its own as well and, and flies that flag um, I saw it I was obviously over in UK and I walk into Tesco's down the road from the farm and the UK farmers front and center of UK beef so yeah that whole provenance story is a big one um, and you know there's a lot of storytelling in that but yeah it's uh, it's still it's still a big business for these countries for these agrarian economies and so it's something that obviously you know, agencies would be probably well served if they understood and took the time to understand that market better. Well, Sinjin, we've run out of time. I've been talking with Sinjin Craner, Managing Director of Agrarian. Uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us. You're welcome, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Look, I've got a final question just before we finish up, and that is, you know, where do you see the big plays coming in the agri-business? Mm -hmm.